1: Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this day after Christmas. I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday. I really do. I hope you had a blessed, restful, uh, wonderful Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with your friends, your family, those you love. I hope you ate a lot. I hope you stuffed yourself because that's what the holidays are for, New Year's is for the resolutions to lose weight, we're still in the week where you can gorge yourself. Okay, don't overdo it, but enjoy and partake because man, life is short. I hope you had a blessed Christmas. I really do. And thank you so much for being here today. This is your go-to for hot liberty. A safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, we are here this week. Monica Crowley Podcast in the house, working because we never stop trying to save our country and support each other in this mission. So we are here this week. I want to make uh, mention that on Thursday, we're going to have a really great, fun conversation with Ben Stein. Ben Stein, the famous economist, but also Ben Stein, the famous game show host of Win Ben Stein's Money, and the famous actor who his... his line or two in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller, Bueller. He played the monotone teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That role is considered one of the top 10 comedic performances of all time. So, Ben Stein is going to be here because he's got a lot to say about what's going on in the world. And he's written a brand new book on Richard Nixon. His father was President Nixon's top economic advisor, Herb Stein. And that's why Ben Stein became an economist. So Ben Stein and I have a lot to talk about with regard to President Richard Milhouse Nixon, and we're going to talk about what's going on today and President Trump. It's going to be a phenomenal conversation. So like I said, I am delivering for you guys this week pure entertainment, a lot of really important stuff, a lot of fun stuff, too. So, thank you for being here this week. All right. Today, because it is the day after Christmas, I wanted to do something special, and I wanted to have a really big conversation. And actually, this is probably the biggest of big conversations because it tackles probably the biggest existential question known to mankind. Okay, we don't do anything small here on the Monica Crowley program. This is the biggest of the big questions, and we're going to take it on right now, right here. Well, as I was thinking about today and this whole Christmas week, I knew that there was no one that I'd rather have here on the show than Lee Strobel. Lee is the former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, who currently serves as founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. He's probably best known for his journey from atheism to Christianity which he writes about brilliantly in his best-selling book which has become a phenomenal movie. Please go get the book and see the film. It's called The Case for Christ. Also, he's written The Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles, and so many other really important books. His latest one is well, to me, probably well, I I wouldn't say the most important but perhaps the most intriguing. It's called mm-hmm. Is God Real? Exploring the Ultimate Question of Life. His website is LeeStruble.com and on Twitter he's at leestrobel. and he joins us now. Lee, welcome.
2: Well, thank you so much, Monica. I sure enjoy chatting with you. I remember the first time we met many, many years ago when I was filling in as a Uh, radio uh, host on a program in Chicago and you were the guest and we talked about Richard Nixon and all kinds of wonderful topics and I was just so impressed by you and uh, appreciate you so much. So thanks for having me.
1: Oh, well, that is such a pleasure to hear and a joy to hear as well. Lee, thank you so much for remembering from many years ago as well. And it's been such a joy to watch your, your journey of faith and exploration of your own faith and how you've brought it to everybody else. We've had you here. We had you here on this show, I guess, around Easter time. Uh, This Mm -hmm. year to talk about the case for Christ. And as I thought about Christmas, the Christmas season, you're now my go to faith guy. (laughs) And I thought about having you. And then of course, your new book called Is God Real came out and I immediately reached out to you because it's such an important book. And it's funny because one of my longtime friends, I was telling him that I was having you on the show. And I said, yeah, his new book is called Is God Real? You have to go get it. And he said, well, that's going to be a very short interview with lee right because the answer is obviously yes and so it's going to be like is god real lee says yes and thanks lee for being here (laughs) and i said no no i I understand where he's coming from but there are so many things to explore with this and i'm it's such a pleasure to have you back um before we get started on the the book and the big existential question of, is God real, that you tackle in this book, your own story is so fascinating, and mm-hmm. you recount it so beautifully in all of your books, but in particular, uh, The Case for Christ. And, I suppose that that journey then led you to writing this book, which, again, is the the logical endpoint for any spiritual journey. Is God real? It's the ultimate and most important existential question. So before we get into it, let's take a step back so everyone has a sense of who you are and how you got here. Your story is so, it's so fascinating. You were at this place early in your life where you were affirmatively rejecting God. Tell us why.
2: Yeah, I was an atheist for much of my life. Um, My background's in journalism and law, and so I uh, tended to respond very well to evidence and facts and logic and reason. And uh, I just thought, even off the top of my head, that just the concept, the mere idea of an all powerful, all knowing creator of the universe just seemed kind of absurd. And um, so I lived a life consistent with that. I married a woman who was um, kind of agnostic. She didn't know how to put the puzzle pieces of faith together. And then uh, my wife met a woman um, who uh, shared Jesus with her, took her to church and answered her tough questions about faith. And then that fateful day I'll never forget when she came to me and, uh, and gave me the bad news that she had decided to become a Christian. And uh, the first word that went through my mind was divorce. I, I was going to walk out. Um, but then I thought, well, what if I what if I could rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in? Um, all I would have to do is disprove the resurrection of Jesus, because clearly that's the linchpin of the Christian faith. Anybody can claim to be God, but Jesus claimed to be god died and then three days later returned from the dead well that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth so if i could just disprove that then i could kind of rescue her from this cult and uh so i launched on a two-year investigation um to uh, investigate whether or not there's any credibility to the resurrection of jesus to the uh, new testament itself um how where does science come in where does um history come in where does philosophy come in And uh, it took me actually a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981 when I sat down and um, uh, realized that, you know, in light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian.
1: It really is true, right? It requires a lot more energy to disbelieve what you can see and sort of instinctually feel as a human being, right?
2: That's that's exactly right. And especially now, you know, when we have over the last 50 years, a series of scientific discoveries in cosmology and physics and biochemistry that give us um, more than ever in history, a solid a foundation for concluding that yes god is real.
1: So before we get into that because this is a huge question that you take on in in your latest book I've always been a believer, so it's hard for me, and I think a lot of people, to wrap their minds around atheism. Just, And you didn't simply just reject God, you didn't believe He existed. So, no God, no heaven, no hell, just this earthly, secular life. And life is so hard, I I can't imagine going through without faith, but I do know a lot of people do. What was your life like as an atheist? Did you consider yourself happy and content and fulfilled?
2: Well, I'll just be honest with you. Um, I concluded that if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way to live my life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. So I lived a very narcissistic, self-absorbed, um, um, drunken, profane uh, life. And um, uh, I was, I was, was I happy? No, because um, I was always after the perfect high. You know, I was always after the ultimate experience of pleasure. But you know what, everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. And so I had a lot of frustration because a lot of anger because of that. And, and, and in a way that back then, if you'd asked me about it, I wouldn't have been able to identify it. But looking back, I can definitely see the impact on my life.
1: You know, it's so interesting that you're saying that that kind of spiritual void was really gnawing at you, even when you couldn't put a name to it. Right. And I think a yeah. lot of people feel that way that there's some, something missing and they're looking everywhere else in the secular world, whether it's alcohol or sex or gambling yes. or, or, yes. uh, shoes in my case. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but they're looking for something materialistic to fill that void, but they can never do it because those things uh, fall away and they, yeah. they literally decay as the Bible talks about, you know, moss eating clothing and things like that. You know, what's interesting, too, is that I've noticed a couple of really big names over the last years who have had that hedonistic lifestyle, or even a satanic lifestyle, like Alice Mm. Cooper, the rock star, or Kat Von D, um, the, you you know, the cosmetic celebrity, and and they were deeply involved in the occult and everything. They have come to Jesus Christ, and they have been willing to share their stories, which are so inspiring.
2: Yes. And, you know, there's two trends going on. You know, on the one hand, uh, the percentage of American adults who believe that God is real is going down. Mm. Um, When I met my wife in 1967, uh, 98 percent of American adults believed that God is real. Now the number is 81 percent. And among Generation Z young people, twice as many call themselves atheists as in my generation. So we're seeing... uh, Increased skepticism, um, But at the same time, we're seeing other statistics as well. We're seeing that two out of three, I think it is, or, or three out of four American adults say they like to grow spiritually and that they're more open to God now than they were before the pandemic. Um, I have a friend, Shane Pruitt, who travels the country speaking to groups of teenagers and college students. And he said he's seen more teenagers and college students come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last three years than in the previous 18 years of ministry combined. So so we have these two trends going. You know, I don't know what to make of that. Um, But I I think what you say is true that so many people kind of hit rock bottom like I did and say, um, you know, this is not working. Um, You know, I'm pursuing happiness. I'm pursuing uh, I'm living a hedonistic lifestyle. You would think I'd be beyond happy. And yet all I had was uh, frustration and uh, and anger and disappointment.
1: It's fun for a while, right? That wild kind of lifestyle, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then one day, Mm -hmm. you know, you just kind of wake up in your own filth and your own kind of aloneness and misery. And it doesn't happen for everybody. But for those that it does, it really is quite the awakening. So, Lee, you discovered the historical and the spiritual Jesus – the son which of course leads you to the father so let's get into that for those of us who believe uh, we take it by faith that god exists but even we believers uh, question or doubt his existence sometimes i think most people do so you wanted to present a rational exploration of the proof of god's existence so how do we know he's real
2: yeah, well, what's interesting is my publisher actually came to me and said, hey, we found something fascinating. We discovered that um, 200 times a second around the clock, someone on planet Earth is typing into a computer search engine. Basically, the question, is God real? Mm. And I thought, wow, that I mean, how can we ignore that? I mean, this is an opportunity to talk about how do we know that God really is real? And so I looked at um, several areas of science, of uh, history, of philosophy, um, to try to build an affirmative case that indeed uh, God is not legendary uh, mythology, make-believe, wishful thinking, but actually there is a solid foundation of truth uh, behind it.
1: Okay, Lee, please hang tight. We've got a lot more ahead, so don't move. And we're back with Lee Strobel. His brand new book is called Is God Real? You referred to this earlier in our conversation, Lee, and you do talk about this a lot in The Case for Christ, the science to back up his existence. So, can you talk a little bit about some of the scientific discoveries supporting the Bible stories that we all know? And I think a lot of people say, well, they're just stories they didn't actually happen, whether it's Noah, whether it's Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, whatever it might be. I think people say, well, they're nice stories, but they didn't actually happen. They're mere parables. And to that, you say what?
2: Well, if you look at, for instance, the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And heavens and the earth is a Hebrew figure of speech called a mirrorism, which simply means God created everything. Well, for centuries, uh, scientists disputed that. Uh, for centuries, scientists said, Wait a minute, the universe is eternal. It's always existed, it's static. And um, and that was the position of science for many centuries. But now, thanks to a series of persuasive philosophical arguments, as well as a series of scientific discoveries over just the last 50 years or so involving the expansion of the universe. We now know that the universe had a beginning at some point in the past. Uh, in fact, Andrew, Alexander De, uh, Valenkin, who is the head of the uh, Cosmology Institute at Tufts University, said, all the evidence we have tells us that the universe had a beginning. In fact, he developed a theorem with two other, (coughs) excuse me, Um, he developed a theorem with two other cosmologists that indicates that um, any universe that is expanding on average through its history like ours must have had a beginning. And in fact, if our universe turns out to be just a small part of a much larger multiverse, that multiverse must have had a beginning. Well, this leads to a very powerful argument for the God being real. Um, it goes like this. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, we now know the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause behind it. Um, and then you ask, well, what kind of a cause can bring a universe into existence? Well, it must be transcendent because it's separate from creation. It must be spirit um, because uh, or, or um, uh, be non material because it existed before the material world, must be eternal uh, because it existed before physical time was created, uh, must be powerful given the immensity of the creation event, must be smart given the precision of the creation event, must be personal because he had to make the decision to create, must be creative because, my goodness, just look at the universe must be caring or loving, uh, given the fact that he crafted a habitat for us to flourish in. And the scientific principle of of Occam's razor would tell us there would be just one creator. So what do we have? Transcendent, spirit, eternal, powerful, smart, personal, creative, caring, unique. That is a description of the God of the Bible. And that rules out polytheistic um, religions um, because we have just one creator. And so polytheistic religions believe that there are multiple gods. Well, that rules that out. It rules out pantheistic religions, which say that everything is God because God had to be separate from creation. Uh, This contradicts Eastern philosophies that say that the universe is cyclical. So this one argument from cosmology goes a long way toward establishing that indeed God is real. And and again, these are just discoveries over the last 50 or 60 years that uh, have allowed us to say with confidence that the universe did have a beginning and therefore all these implications fall into place.
1: How does that square with the Big Bang Theory? Where, you know, scientists will say, no, there wasn't a divine hand that created the universe. It was this massive uh, explosion that created the universe that's based on real physics.
2: Yeah. Um, You you know, the Big Bang uh, theory would be totally consistent with um, this argument for the existence of God. Uh, A a Big Bang requires a banger.
1: (laughs) Right. That's right.
2: the, f- the most famous uh, skeptic in history, David Hume, said, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as to say that something could arise without a cause. And so the, the um, Big Bang would be an effect, uh, but there had to be a cause about it. The Big Bang requires a banger behind it, and that would be God.
1: Are there other scientific um, developments or discoveries that you can point to about other stories in the Bible? Let's say Old Testament, um, Abraham up on the mountain, uh, Noah with the flood. Are there real kind of scientific things that you can point to to say those events actually did happen?
2: Well, the, the other area of science that I find especially persuasive is the area of physics, which is the... Um, uh, the numbers that govern the operation of the universe. And uh, what modern science tells us, and again, these are just discoveries over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, What modern science tells us is that the numbers that govern the operation of the universe conspire in an absolutely extraordinary way to allow a universe that is habitable for life. In other words, Our universe is fine-tuned on a razor's edge so that life can exist in a way that is so finely tuned, you can't say, oh, it just happened by chance. I'll give you some examples. Let's say you go outside at night on a summer evening and you look up at the sky and you expect to see thousands of stars. But on this night, you don't see that. On this night, you look up and you see 50 to 100 giant dials in the sky. And each of these dials could be calibrated to one of trillions or trillions of possible settings. And yet every one of these dials is perfectly calibrated so that life can exist. That is the picture that modern physics gives us of our universe. I'll give you an example. Everybody knows what the force of gravity is. You know, I'm holding a pencil. If I were to drop it, it would hit the floor. Well, the force of gravity is set at the exact right value so that life can exist um, so imagine a ruler that goes across the entire known universe 15 billion light years broken down in one inch increments that ruler represents the plausible range along which the force of gravity could have been set anywhere along that ruler and yet it's set at the exact right place so that life can exist well what if we were to change it what if we were to change the force of gravity one inch compared to the 15 billion light year width of the universe. If we did that, intelligent life would be impossible anywhere in the universe or the strong nuclear force. That's the force that holds together the nucleus of atoms. It's so finely tuned. If we were to change it just a tiny, tiny bit, if we were to change it by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 all we would have in the universe would be hydrogen life would be impossible. So th- th- this just defies the explanation that it could have happened by chance. I asked one famous physicist, I said, do you think this could have just happened by chance? And he looked at me and said, you know, we scientists have a term for that. I said, what? He said, ain't going to happen. <laughs> oh,
1: so. Very scientific description there.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, an atheist try to get around it by saying, well, what if, what if there are a uh, an infinite number of invisible other universes. And if you spin the dials enough times in an infinite number of universes, one of them will come up with the winning numbers, and that's our universe, and that's why life exists here. Well, the problem with that is there is no evidence whatsoever for an infinite number of other universes. In fact, a famous physicist from um, Germany recently came out and said, this is a scientific waste of time. Um, um, besides which, if one universe requires an explanation, an, an infinite number of universes re- would require an even bigger explanation, and that would point even more strongly toward God. So honestly, Monica, if I were still an atheist today and all I had to go on, forget, I, throughout the Bible, I, I, I want to look at the Bible. Um, if all I had to go on were the two areas I talked about, cosmology and physics, I would be convinced that God is real.
1: You know, there was a preacher years ago, I guess in the 1960s, his name was William Branham. And when he was talking about the existence of God, Lee, he used the example of a blade of grass. He said that a blade of grass looks like the most simple thing in the world. But Mm -hmm. as a biological matter, each blade of grass is actually quite complex, photosynthesis and and all of the processes that we know go on in the plant universe. And he said, we can make a blade of synthetic grass. We can make Mm -hmm. astroturf, but no matter how hard we try, we cannot duplicate a true, real single blade of grass. That always stuck with me. God yeah. is everywhere in all creation around us every single day. I see him, you know, you mentioned the night sky. I see him in the night sky all the time. Yeah. I see God in the sunrises. Sometimes I post it on my Instagram when I'm up early yeah. for television and I see the sun rising over the ocean. I'll take a picture and post it. I see him in the sunsets, uh, you know, in the tides of the ocean, in the wind. I see him everywhere. Yes. Then again, I'm a believer. But when you when you see it through those eyes, and even in the most simple biological thing, like a blade of grass, yes. it becomes so obvious.
2: Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I, I, I just saw a time-lapse photography of 300 days of a, of a single uh, seed of a pine tree. And it showed over 300 days how this thing rose out of the ground and, and um, developed into a new little pine tree. And you go, oh my goodness! I mean, this is this is miraculous. But you know, another area that's related to this is within again the last 50 years, scientists have understood that inside every cell in our body, we have a what um, um, you know, 100 trillion cells in our body. Uh, If you were to open up any one of those cells and unravel the DNA, it would be six feet tall. And embedded in that DNA would be a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out the precise assembly instructions for every protein out of which we are made. Um, It's information, biological information. There's more information in every cell in your body than you would find in 200 years of the Sunday New York Times. And the question is, where does information come from? Um, nature can't produce information. It can produce patterns. You know, if you walk down the beach, I live in Houston. If you go down to Galveston and uh, the wet, in the wet sand in the early morning, you see ripple marks. You would say, oh, well, the waves made those ripple marks in the wet sand. But if you're walking down the beach and you see john loves mary and a heart around it and an arrow through it in the sand you wouldn't say oh the waves made that why because whenever we see information whether it's a computer code whether it's a painting whether it's a a newspaper there's always an intelligence behind it and so how do we account for the information you know we in in english we use a 26 letter alphabet to spell words Well, um, inside our cells, we have a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out chemical words that spell out the precise assembly instructions for every protein out of which we're made. And I want to know, where does that come from? Um, There's always intelligence um, when we see information. So I think that's another way that modern science is pointing us toward the reality that God is real.
1: Let me ask you about aliens. Because (laughs) I know this is going to sound like an off-the-wall question, but I think it's really pertinent to what we're talking about here. When you believe in God, and as you're laying out, particularly the Christian faith, it is that... Human creation is a very unique and singular creation by God. So now the CIA, you've got government coming forward saying, oh, by the way, yeah, the Roswell crash was real. We are in possession of actual alien beings and so on. I don't, I, who knows, okay, if yep. we're, this is mass disinformation or what. But this whole idea that Human life on Earth, and in fact, all life on Earth, is unique. We don't see it anywhere else in our solar system, but people will argue, well, there's intelligent life, there's intelligent design beyond our solar system. Mm -hmm. In other parts of the universe, we've been visited, but that really, that blows apart you know, most of the singular God theories in the world or monotheistic religions in the world, like, oh, well, we're not really unique. God created these gray beings who are on the other side of the universe and have come to see us now and again. W- what is yeah. your view on the singular nature nature of human life and the whole alien question?
2: Yeah, it wouldn't bother me whatsoever if, um, if we discover that there's in life, um, the Bible talks about our creation and our story, um, but it, it never says anywhere that this is the only example of creatures made in God's image. And so, if we were to discover that indeed there are other civilizations of people who God made in His image, that wouldn't bother me. Now, if they fell into sin, uh, they would need redemption, just we have. Um, um, but Um, Their existence wouldn't bother me. I I don't think there's anything inconsistent necessarily about the existence of um, other civilizations. Um, um, I don't think that would contradict the Bible. I don't think it would um, challenge my faith. Um, But I think they like us, if they fell into sin, that would need to be dealt with. I mean, to be uh, redeemed. And um, so God would have to deal with them separately from us.
1: That's interesting because if you're a Christian believer and you believe that God sent His only Son, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, for salvation and redemption, uh, yeah. forgiveness, um, then it, perhaps there has to be another form of that for another life form. But that—that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> That—that
2: is—it's interesting though. In my book, I interview a famous physicist, and uh, we look at the fact that there are over three hundred things, 300 factors that need to be in place for life to exist on planet Earth. Uh, 300 factors, things you wouldn't expect, like, like plate tectonics is necessary if we're going to have life in the world for various reasons. It, it, it avoids a water world and so forth. And um, so there are about 300 parameters. And I said, yeah, but there's a lot of stars out there. Maybe there's a lot of planets too. And he said, well, let's say there's a million trillion other planets in the universe. He said, let's just run the numbers. Um, what are the odds that there would be another planet with life like ours that that has these 300 different parameters? And he ran the numbers and it's just like, it's ridiculous. I mean, it would, it would never ever happen if you just look at it from that perspective. So I think, um, you know, the question of whether or not it's possible to have life elsewhere, um, just mathematically, just looking at what it takes to have a, a planet that is life-sustaining, um, you know, rules out so many possibilities that we may not be as, as, uh, as visited as we think.
1: Okay, please stand by. We've got more with Lee Strobel and his new book, Is God Real? Straight ahead. And we're back with Lee Strobel, the author of Is God Real? You know, Lee, when I think about the human mind, it, it's very powerful, but it's also still limited. And it has a very tough time understanding the concept of eternity, that God is the Alpha and the Omega, that He is eternal. Yes. Yes. The the concept of time, we try to apply it, you know, Jesus was on earth for X number of years, 33 years, whatever it was, um, but that God himself, the Father, isn't eternal, and that there's no concept of time that can be applied to him. Can you address that?
2: Yeah. uh, God is eternal, and that is a, a part of his creation. And this is an objection that people raise to the argument I made earlier about Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, so the universe must have a cause. People say, well, wait a minute. If God created the universe, then who created God? And the answer is you're misunderstanding the argument. The argument is not whatever exists has a cause. It's whatever begins to exist has a cause. God, by definition, is eternal. He has always existed. In fact, before he created physical time with the creation of the universe, before that, all there was was timelessness. And uh, besides which, atheists shouldn't have a problem with something being eternal because they used to maintain until they were disproven by the evidence that the universe was eternal. But we now know that it isn't and that it indeed had a beginning and that points toward a supernatural creator.
1: You know, going along with this idea of, co- of time and and how it applies to God or doesn't apply to God and the concept of eternity, Lee, there are also the concepts of omniscience and omnipresence, that God is all-knowing, that he sees all things, and that he is always present everywhere. Could you unpack those two concepts?
2: Yeah, and and this is an interesting uh, concept because uh, of Jesus entering into human history. Um, Because, uh, you know, was Jesus um, omnipresent? He is God, So in what sense was he omnipresent when he was living in Nazareth? Um, So it raises questions about that. And yet Philippians chapter two tells us that God, uh, that Jesus set aside the perks of heaven uh, temporarily uh, to enter into our world, to be part of our world. Um, This is what Christmas is about. And um, um, uh, to be born into the situation where he is setting aside the active use of his, some of his divine attributes. Um, um, so, and so because Jesus is fully human and fully divine, that has a lot of implications for us. Um, the fact that he's truly human tells us that he can understand us. He can relate to us. He's been there. He suffered thirst. He, um, you know, the Bible says he was tempted and yet without sin. Um, So he can relate to us when we bring him our concerns, our problems, our um, conundrums and so he can relate to that. And yet he's also fully God. And because of that, he has the capacity to really help us in ways that otherwise we couldn't be helped. So, um, you know, he set aside those, some of those perks of heaven, in order to engage in this mission of coming into our world, and uh, redeeming us.
1: In the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I think God understood that the human mind, again, as powerful as it is, was limited, and while understood the concept of him, um, really needed human form Um, And so that we could really grasp what God was and then of course the resurrection, forgiveness, redemption, salvation uh, for those who believe. It, It all becomes more manageable for the human mind to process. Um, One of my favorite scriptures, Lee, is Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. I actually have it in my my Twitter bio, my Instagram (laughs) bio, and it says, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." We try to apply human understanding to God, and we're bound to be left disappointed and frustrated because we're like, God, I want that job, or God, I want that boyfriend or girlfriend, or I I want this, and it's not working out, and I'm frustrated, and why won't you give me what I want? This is why my ways are higher. You have to trust, right? It gets to the question of trusting in Him.
2: Right. I mean, if, if he is truly who he claims to be, if he truly is omniscient, if he understands and knows all, then why would we not trust him? Uh, and, and he loves us. Um, why would we not trust him with our future and, and, and how that unfolds? Uh, some A lot of times we think we know better. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying, you know, uh, one of the biggest curses is to get what you pray for. Yeah, because we have limited, we have a limited perspective, and sometimes we ask for things, we pray about things, and and uh, we're fortunate that God did not answer those prayers in the way that we wanted them to be answered. When we look at the long haul, um, but that God answers prayers in a way that benefit us, and so, so um, you know, God is otherworldly, beyond what we is not just a little bit different. Uh, he is otherworldly. Um, people like think of God as um, in, in a magnified version of their earthly father. Um, and this runs in, this creates all kinds of problems. It's a very common problem uh, where people think that, uh, oh, God is like my dad, except he's got superpowers. And, um, you know, if your dad has disappointed you, if your dad has hurt you, if your dad has let you down, uh, you think that God is going to let you down. And so you don't want to know that God. And so when we look at the famous atheists of history, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche uh, Freud, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare, every single one of them had a father who either died when they were young, divorced their mother when they were young, or with whom they had a very difficult relationship. And so this is a, this is a problem when people just see God as just being a magnified version of us. Um, you know, and we've been hurt by our earthly father. We don't want to really know God. We have to get beyond that. And C.S. Lewis said, I'll tell you how to get beyond it. He said, imagine what the perfect earthly father would be like. What, What would the perfect dad be like? Oh, my goodness. Well, he'd be loving. He'd be kind. He'd be gentle. He'd be your biggest cheerleader. He'd pull you up in his lap and hug you. And he said, That is a picture of your heavenly father. Mm. He's the perfect father that there doesn't exist in this world. He is the perfect expression of love. And uh, when we can get beyond this idea that he's just a magnified version of our earthly dad... Um, often people can make great progress toward, toward coming into a relationship with the real Heavenly Father.
1: And that's such a powerful moment when it happens for people. And yet what you laid out, Lee, brings us to yet another big existential question. In the Hebrew Bible... God is often, um, or at least appears, wrathful, judgmental. There's a lot of ruin, war, violence. And there's some of that in the New Testament. But those books focus on Jesus, his ministry, the resurrection, why he was sent. And then, of course, there's the book of Revelation, which is a, a totally different ball of wax conversation for another day. But how do we reconcile the God that we see in the Hebrew Bible and the God that we see in the New Testament?
2: Well, if we take the totality of the New Testament, including Revelation, uh, there's more violence there than there is in the Old Testament. Um, You know, uh, there's a lot in Revelation today, if we take it seriously. Uh, Now, of course, it's using language that's symbolic and so forth, but it's still pointing toward, um, um, you know, a God who is is, um, um, wrathful in the sense that he he um is righteous, and he is going to uh, express that through ultimately the way in which he deals with humanity uh, but he's a God who is loving and um and anyone anywhere at any time from any culture who um, comes to him in repentance and faith, he adopts as his child and and will um have a relationship with them in this world and and guarantee that when they pass from this world, the gates of heaven will be flung open for them. So, um, you know, God is God is love, but he's not just love. He's also just. He's also holy. Um, and, and we have to keep that in mind. He's, he's not just loving and going to wink at sin and say, no, 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 that's OK. You know, if you want to do that, that's fine. Yeah, he can't do that. And um, because of his nature, he is perfect. He is holy. And um, consequently, um, those of us who do fall into sin, which is all of us, need redemption. And um, in his incredible love, of course, here we are Christmas season, he sends his one and only son, a fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, into this world um, to pay the death penalty that we deserve for the sins that we've committed so that we can um, receive Um, forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. And that is the ultimate expression of love. So I think that trumps everything.
1: I think a lot of people struggle with that, Lee, and you know that as well. There's all of this wickedness that we see in the world, and I think that leads a lot of people to question the existence of God, because a good, loving God would never allow these kinds of horrors. So, how do you answer that question? If God loves his creation, mankind, why does he allow so much suffering? Why does he allow cancer and childhood diseases and accidents and famine and war? Things like the Holocaust and Hamas's recent attack on, on Israel, on God's chosen people, the Jews. Why does he allow such pain?
2: Yeah. And I couldn't write my book, Is God Real?, without dealing with that issue. And so I not only build the affirmative case that God exists, but then I look at the two biggest objections, which is the one you're raising, which is that if God exists, why is there suffering in the world? And also, if God exists, why does he seem so hidden from us? Um, and so this question of, of why God allows suffering in the world is, it's one of those questions that if if you give a 25 cent answer to a million dollar question people are always unsatisfied and so i spend golly i don't know how many pages in that chapter interviewing a famous philosopher on that issue and he gives i think one of the most powerful fully orbed answers to that question that i've ever seen so i encourage people who wrestle with this to read that chapter but basically, God has existed from eternity past as God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship, a relationship of love. So love is the greatest value in the universe. And when God decided to create humankind, he wanted to give us the ability to love, to love each other and to love him. Uh, well, the only way that he could do that was to give us free will. Um, you know, when my daughter was little many years ago, um, you're too young for this, Monica, but uh when my little daughter was little, they used to have a toy called Chatty Cathy. And it was a doll that you would get, and it would have a string on the back. And you pulled the string and let go, and the doll would talk to you. It was very primitive technology. So she would pull the string and let go, and the doll would say, I love you. That's <laughs> good as you got, and. So did that doll love her? No, it it was programmed to say that. It was built mechanically to say it had no choice. It must say that love always involves a choice. And so for God to be able to allow us to love him and to love others, he had to give us free will. Well, what have we done with our free will? Well, we've walked away from God. We've hurt each other. We've engaged in wars. We've engaged in conduct hurting each other. You know, I can take my hand and I can use it in my free will to feed a hungry person. Or I can take that same hand and use that same free will and pick up a gun and kill an innocent person. But if I pick up a gun and kill an innocent person, it's a little disingenuous to say, God, why do you allow suffering in the world? You know, the, I've seen the problem, and the problem is us. Um you know we we have chosen to manifest evil in our world. God is not the author of evil, but the only way He could allow us to love would be to um, give us the potential for that to enter into our world um because free will is necessary and um and and, and we 've chosen you know you know i saw recently. We grow enough food in this world to feed every man, woman, and child 3,000 calories a day. Why are people suffering? Why are people starving in the world? Because we don't care. Because we would just as soon let people in Africa or Asia or wherever, we just as soon let them die. Um, it's our indifference. That's evil. Um, and, and so we, have, we are the ones who have manifested the evil in the world. And God says, I will deal with it. Uh, You know, several years ago, my my daughter's a novelist. She's written half a dozen books of fiction. She's a very talented writer. And she said, Dad, you need to write a novel. So I thought, okay, I'll write a novel. So I wrote a novel. It's kind of a John Grisham thriller. Uh, It's called The Ambition. Nobody ever read it. (laughs) but (laughs) So I wrote this novel. But it would be like someone reading halfway through my novel and slamming it closed and saying, boy, that Strobel's a terrible novelist. He didn't wrap up. Uh, all the loose ends of the plot. He didn't, he didn't resolve all the tensions between the characters. And I'd say, wait a minute, you didn't finish the book. You need to finish the book. And, and the same is true. We have, history is not over. God has not consummated history. And, and, and will evil be dealt with? Yes. Evil will be dealt with. And um, um, so why is God delaying? Why is he waiting? Well, the Bible tells us he is holding back the consummation of history because there are yet some people that he knows are about to enter into the kingdom of God. And out of his love for them, he's, he's holding back the end of history so that they can find redemption and hope and eternal life. That's an expression of his love. Um, but, you know, will God deal with this? Yes, he will. We see people getting away, quote unquote, with things all the time. They're not getting away with it um god will deal with it
1: i always see the wickedness that's raging and it looks like evil is more brazen than ever that all, yeah. all of this evil is just now right in our faces And I think at some point, God has to put his foot down. Um, And I say this all the time. I guess it gets back to Adam and Eve and the fall of man, their disobedience to God allowed the opening for sin and death and for the enemy, for for evil to arrive. But maybe God allows it to bring us closer to him so that we recognize, right, that we can't do this alone.
2: Yes. Even though evil is not good and suffering is not good, God does use it for good. Um, and of course, the verse that people quote all the time is Romans 8, 28, that says, God will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if we doubt that, if we say, like my wife, my wife has a chronic medical condition that has her in pain every single day. So she's been in pain every day for 20 years, and she'll be in pain every day for the rest of her life unless God intervenes and does a miracle. And he hasn't chosen to do that. Um, and so someone like that could say, well, wait a second, wait a second. Bible says that God can take even the bad things that happen to us and draw good from them. I don't think that's how could it be in my case with all the suffering I've gone through. And to that I say, wait a second, think about this. God has taken the worst thing that could ever happen in the history of the universe, which is the death of the Son of God on a cross, and out of that he has drawn the best thing that has ever happened in the universe, which is the opening of heaven to all who follow him. And if God can take the worst thing in the universe and from that create the best thing in the universe, then we can trust him that our sufferings and our, um, the evil that we encounter, that, that, that God will ultimately in this world or the next use it for our ultimate good.
1: Before we let you go, Lee, uh, there are a lot of people, um, evangelicals, but others too, that believe because wickedness seems so ascendant. And maybe that's true for every age, but it certainly looks like evil is just so brazen now, right in our faces, that perhaps the end times are either here or imminent. What's your view on that?
2: Well we're one way to look at it is every single day we're one step closer <laughs> yes that's <laughs> um, true, yeah, I mean ever since uh, nineteen forty eight which is when Israel was formed um that was kind of the the trigger that uh set the the countdown um and um so I'm no expert on end times, but um are we closer than ever? yeah, I really think we are um and um I just, I just urge people who who don't know God, who who wonder about Him, get this settled. Get this settled. Don't don't think that you have all the time in the world. Um, make this the season that you really kind of investigate: Is God real? Can I know Him? Can I have an experience with Him? Can I have a relationship with Him? Can I be confident that I can spend eternally with Him? And I think the answers to all that are yes. Um, but you know, we have to seek and uh the Bible says in in the old testament in Jeremiah and in the New Testament in Hebrew that those who sincerely seek God guess what we're going to find him. so I just encourage your listeners you know I, are we closer to the end time? Yeah, every day we're closer um so don't take don't take time for, um for granted um, make this the season that you reach some conclusions about who God is and 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 come into a relationship with him where he will forgive you or he will adopt you as his child, or he will fling open the doors of heaven for you forever.
1: It is about a personal relationship. And as Christians, this is how we embrace Jesus, um, to have a personal relationship with Jesus and and the Father as well, and talk to him through prayer. It doesn't have to be a formal prayer like you see in the Bible or something, although that's very helpful. But it can just be like, hi, God, I need you, right? I mean, it could be as simple as that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, God loves it when people come to him and and just sincerely and say, even to say to him, God, I don't know if you're there. I'm not sure. I would like to know, but I don't know. But I'll tell you what, if you are, I want to know you. And you pray a prayer like that, God will answer that prayer.
1: You know, I I give a lot of political speeches, Lee, and I always talk about, you know, the secular nature of the battle that we're in, you know, communism versus capitalism and uh, everything that we're seeing. But I always make a point to say to all of these audiences, and they're not expecting to hear it because they're there for a political talk, and how do we win the next election? How do we uh, bring the culture back? And I address all of those things. But I always make a point of saying, this above all is a spiritual battle. This is a battle of good versus evil, God versus the enemy, however you want to cast it, but this is a spiritual battle, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. So get right with God, and as Ephesians says, put on the full armor of God, because you don't know what's going to come at us tomorrow, because what is happening is so much bigger than us.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's well said, Monica.
1: Oh uh, well, thank you. I take that as a huge compliment coming from you, <laughs> Lee. I, you know, I can't thank you enough for these really expansive conversations that we have a couple of times a year. I know my audience loves it and appreciates it as do I, Lee.
2: Well, I do too. I enjoy talking to you. You are just so energetic and uh, creative, and uh, you've got a wonder. God has given you a wonderful mind. Um, that you have used for his glory. So I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, that means the world to me. Thank you so much. And your spiritual journey is so incredible and it's inspired so many people and will continue to do so. I know it's inspired this audience and, and me too. So thank you for being here, for sharing your story. The book is called, Is God Real? Exploring the Ultimate Question of Life. Please go get it. You can get it on Amazon, wherever books are sold. It will literally change your life life least trouble thank you so
2: much thank you monica god bless you and all your listeners
1: okay well i told you guys that we do the really big stuff on this show the really important stuff and we have some fun too right like if you're talking about is god real you gotta ask the aliens question which i did and we got a really interesting answer from Lee Strobel. Um, this was a really important show, a really necessary show. So I thank you guys for being here and listening to it. Uh, I hope you'll share it with people you know, you love, you care about, because this was a really important one to do, especially as we end this year and go into what we know is going to be a very complex and difficult year next year. So thanks for being here as always. Thank you for checking out our great sponsors. And we will see you right back here on Thursday as we begin to close out the year uh, with Ben Stein and a really smart, fun conversation with Bueller. Bueller, Ben Stein is going to be here. Can't wait. See you then. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Behockel Entertainment, LLC.